This is More to Say with Randy Naughton. Interesting conversations with interesting people. We welcome you into More to Say with Randy Naughton. This is my podcast. And basically what we want to do is have interesting conversations with interesting people. And you may know I love sports. I worked in sports and I've had a great time doing sports. But one of the most interesting people, in my opinion, in sports is our guest, Mr. Bob Costas. Hi, Bob. Hello, Randy. How are you? I'm not sure I have more to say. I've said so much for so long. You're going to have to find out if I have anything more to say. Well, that is my job now. I'm interviewing you. So um, it's a thrill to be able to talk with you. And I want I want to share uh, a story long, long time ago when I was working in sports in St. Louis. And I believe we were both at the baseball writers dinner at the then Clarion Hotel in downtown St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And they had the subterranean ballrooms where you went up and down yeah. the esca- the mile long yeah. escalator. Mm-hmm. I was I was going downstairs. You were coming up. I was carrying a tripod. And and I looked over and I go, hi. And you said, hi, Randy. And I almost fainted because you knew my name. I almost died. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. Bob you know, I'm a dopey young sports reporter. So that was one of the thrills of my life. I will tell you that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It really was. And then uh, another story is when I reached out to you to come and do this interview with me, I I started out, dear Mr. Costas, and you go, call me Bob or your excellency, which I thought was funny. So, so here we are on a first name basis now. Yeah. (laughs) So we're talking to the Mac daddy of sports reporting, Bob Costas. Um, and I want to kind of get into your background and how you started. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been a sports fan. I used to watch <laughs> it all with my dad on the weekends. I'm one of seven kids, and I and I would get in trouble almost every Saturday watching college basketball and football games. And my mother would yell that I didn't get my chores done. I've always loved sports. Been a been a fan. How did you get into it? Were you were you a huh? fan and then turned into it? Is it something you've always wanted to do? I was always a fan like zillions of other kids, late 50s, early 60s, but maybe different in this respect. I actually was attuned to the broadcasters and to the sports writers that I read uh, growing up on Long Island. Uh, to me, the broadcasts were inseparable from the games themselves. So if like every other kid, I was throwing a rubber ball against the wall or playing wiffle ball in a schoolyard or shooting baskets someplace, I would hear the announcer in my head. Now, in my case, it wasn't yet, Harry Carey or Jack Buck, it was Marty Glickman and Marv Albert and Red Barber and Mel Allen and the young Vin Scully. Uh, Those were the guys that were kind of rattling around in my head. And I thought by the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I thought, well, if I'm ever going to get into Yankee Stadium without paying for the ticket, it's certainly not going to be to stand where Mickey Mantle is standing. It's going to be to maybe sit where Red Barber and Mel Allen sitting, as crazy as that dream may have seemed. And then when I was about 16, I read in a Nick yearbook that Marty Glickman, who practically invented how basketball was to be called on the radio, all the kind of geometry of the court when it was all relatively new in the 1940s for basketball on the radio, and then his apprentice, Marv Albert, they had both gone to Syracuse. In fact, Marty Glickman was a standout athlete at Syracuse and was on the 1936 Berlin Olympic team with Jesse Owens. Um, And so I thought, well, Syracuse, uh, according to my guidance counselor then, you couldn't look everything up so easily on the internet, they'd hand you a pamphlet from this university or that. 
But the guidance counselor said, yeah, Syracuse has one of the best journalism programs in the country. Uh, and that was good enough for me. They play big time sports. Marty Glickman went there. Marv Albert went there. And so I applied there and I got in and I became part of what is now a very, very long line of broadcasters, sports broadcasters specifically. There are a few like Dick Clark and Ted Koppel and Jeff Glore and a few others that were not in sports. But there are dozens upon dozens of us. It's almost the cradle of sports broadcasters. So going there was uh, a lucky break for me because it, it created at least a, an environment in which I could practice at it and be around like-minded young people. And um, things kind of fell into place for me from there. In fact, when I was just 22 and barely out of Syracuse, that's when I came to, to KMOX in St. Louis and things fast-tracked for me from that point. That is an incredible story. You knew so, so early what you wanted yeah. to do. And, you know, going through the decades of everything you've done, you know, from the Olympics to baseball, to football, to basketball, boxing, you've pretty much called everything. Um, and there are certain catchphrases or certain lines in sports from certain broadcasters that will forever be entrenched in history. Like, do you believe in miracles? And down uh -huh. the stretch they come. You've called some pretty amazing moments. Is yes. there a particular call that you made in a particular game or sport that really sticks out as your favorite? Well, you know, I don't have a catchphrase uh, or a signature phrase. I say whatever occurs to me in the moment. But I guess if I had to pick one, it would probably be Michael Jordan's final shot as a bull. We thought it was the end of his NBA career, although he hadn't announced it at the time. There was much speculation to that effect. We didn't know he'd come back for an encore a few years later with the Washington Wizards. But it was about as dramatic a conclusion to a career and to a dynasty run as you could ever have. Uh, they're down by one point. He makes the shot. It's a classic jump shot with five seconds to go. Turns defeat into victory. Ties a ribbon around the sixth Bulls championship of the 90s. And in every one of those finals, Michael Jordan was the MVP. You couldn't ask for a more classic closing note. And I think that NBC's broadcast matched the moment. And then some 20 plus years later, when everyone was locked down during COVID, the Last Dance documentary came along and people seemed to be enthralled by that. And obviously, because the big games were on NBC, a lot of the calls that I made were part of the documentary and I hadn't heard them in more than 20 years. And what you always have your fingers crossed about is, did I mess this up or does it stand the test of time? Does it seem okay 20 years later? And luckily it all did. That's fabulous. And, and amongst all the sports that you've called, is there a particular sport that you would do more over than others? What's your favorite? Well, baseball has always been my favorite, but I was lucky enough to do others. I was a big basketball fan, both college and NBA, and it was actually basketball that brought me to St. Louis. Uh, in the Olympics, there's so many different events, many of which we don't pay much attention to outside every four years, but you have to kind of lock yourself into those and become familiar with them. And in the context of the Olympics, even race walking has a certain grandeur to it or rhythmic gymnastics or whatever it is. Um, everything is elevated by the framing of the Olympics. So, you know, I learned to appreciate almost everything, but baseball was always my first love. It was lucky for me to wind up in St. Louis where baseball is still number one, even if football has overtaken it elsewhere. Even when the Rams and the football Cardinals were in St. Louis, the Cardinals, the baseball Cardinals 
still mattered most. So that was why St. Louis, as among the reasons why St. Louis as my adopted hometown was such a good fit for me because of the baseball aspect. Wonderful. And and I do want to know, you mentioned that when you look back on that documentary and, oh gosh, does it stand the test of time? Did I say something, you know, that I didn't really want to say that I want to take back? Is there, is there a particular call? Because I know in sports broadcasting, whether it's on the sideline at a Rams game, you know, I've made mistakes, mispronouncing names Mm -hmm. or did, and it, and it was amplified, I think probably. And I I believe this because I was a woman in sports um, at the time in the nineties, but is there a particular call you made that was cringeworthy that, you know what, you can't unsay it. Is there something you can remember? I don't think so much cringeworthy, but there are a couple where in retrospect, something occurs to you after the fact that might've been better. What you did was serviceable enough, but maybe something else would have been better. I know there are some broadcasters who, in anticipating a moment, script what they're going to say if that moment plays out as they expect. There's nothing wrong with that, but I've never done that. You, you're aware of what the narrative of a game, a career, a season, a series is, and so you should have those potential talking points in your head. But I've never scripted anything out, uh, and I've given this example before. And usually it's to another broadcaster who would appreciate this. Uh, In 1995, the World Series is in Atlanta. It's Cleveland versus the Atlanta Braves. And the Braves had established themselves to that point, the midpoint of the decade, as the best team in baseball. Toronto had won back-to-back world championships, but the Braves had won all the division titles. And they'd been knocking at the door. And they'd been to the World Series twice and lost it. And they probably would have gone back in 94 had there not been a strike. So finally they win and they win on their home field. And what popped into my head was the team of the 90s has its world championship as the last out was made. Now, in retrospect, I didn't know that the Yankees were going to come out of nowhere in the second half of the decade. Joe Torre arrives in 96 along with Derek Jeter uh, and they wind up winning the World Series in 96, in 98, and 99. However, when they played the Braves in the World Series in 99, that team of the decade designation was still up for grabs because if the Braves had won that World Series, they would have split two World Series with the Yankees. They would have had the same number of world championships in the decade and many more overall wins and division championships. So what I said in 95 at the time was not outrageously wrong. In retrospect, I wish I could adjust it a little bit, would have been more precise. But more to the point, what occurred to me, not five seconds later, uh, it was a home victory, so the crowd goes nuts. It's television, you lay out. So the team of the 90s has its world championship. They go nuts, and I probably don't say another thing for at least 30, maybe 45 seconds. But five seconds after my last utterance, this pops into my head. Atlanta at last, which is much more poetic, mm-hmm. a much better caption. I could see I, it on a T-shirt. <laughs> yes. In fact, people have told me that if, they, if, if I had said that, that would have been a T-shirt. No question about it. Um, <clears throat> now, if I had been one of those guys who script stuff, I would have had it on an index card. just. In case. <laughs> but it occurred to me five seconds too late. So uh, a perfectly serviceable call, but I would have preferred the perfect call which yeah. you seldom have. That would have been a perfect call. And and it would have definitely been the headline in every single newspaper. Yeah, could have been. I, 
Yeah, I want to talk about the relationship between sports journalists and athletes. I read years ago a book my daughter gave me for Christmas because she knew I'm a I'm a fan of <clears throat> Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell. It's called mm-hmm. Sound and Fury by Dave Kindred. Oh yeah, and, I read oh, it. Oh, what an incredible book. It's about the unbelievable relationship between these two unlikely <clears throat> people in Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell and how they just made it work in turbulent times on the yeah. social aspect in sports uh, religion, race, you name it. It was just that time. So is there in your mind an athlete journalist combo today in any sport that kind of rivals that, uh, between, you know, the, the relationship between Ali and Cosell, because I don't, I can't think of any, you know, that's a great question, which has never been posed to me. Dave Kindred, by the way, who is still at his craft in his eighties, is part of that group of really, really exceptionally good writers. Not just game stories, but people who wrote like a great novelist writes. And I fear that in this current world of Twitter or X or whatever the hell passes for a hot take here or there, that the kind of grace notes, the kind of literate touch that not just the best writers brought to it, but that essayists like Jim McKay and Jack Whitaker brought to it, or that Vin Scully brought to it in his broadcast, that that is going away. And I was always appreciative of that, whether in print or on the air. Um, You could say, because Vin Scully was the voice of the Dodgers for so long, that his voice is imprinted on Sandy Koufax's career or Fernando Valenzuela's career, whatever the case might be. And Jack Buck's voice is forever linked with Ozzie Smith. Go crazy, folks, go crazy. Or Harry Carey with Stan Musial. But that's different than Cosell and Ali, because not only was that national, but they were each bombastic, bigger-than-life personalities. They were each controversial in their own right. And they each spoke about issues beyond the outcome of a boxing match. They each represented those issues. So I can't think of anything that would match that. And if someone came along now, let's say a pair of people came along now, uh, and they had some sort of affinity for each other, and they were each bigger than life personalities, it still wouldn't land the same way as it landed in the 60s and 70s, because the landscape is so different. And the issues at hand are so different. And everything now is parsed and picked over by vultures, and it winds up stripped of its context and its nuance. Uh, Then, when Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali were on Wide World of Sports, you either saw it or you didn't. You didn't even have a VCR to tape it at home. It was an event when Muhammad Ali fought. Uh, And even if that was a pay-per-view fight, a week later, the whole fight would be on Wide World of Sports. And he and maybe with Joe Frazier, maybe not, they'd be sitting with Howard Cosell. And Cosell was so provocative in his own right, even apart from Ali, and Ali would tweak Cosell. And they were each so imitable. You know, a young Billy Crystal could imitate them both, pitch perfect, and recreate, you know, what what it sounded like and felt like for the two of them to go head to head. I, I, I can't think of anything that approaches that. Yeah, I, I tried to rack my brain. And I said, there, no. there, there's nobody. And, and you mentioned hot takes, which leads us into mm-hmm. social media. So you have 
pretty much anybody in their basement with a podcast or an opinion or a hot take, as you mentioned it. Um, Social media has changed the landscape of sports. Has it done it for the better or for worse? I think it's by and large for the worse. That doesn't mean there can't be something out there that's useful. Uh, But look, if you let everybody through the door for American Idol auditions, no matter what, we're not just talking about Twitter or now X, all the blogs or anybody can have their own podcast. Anybody can do anything. They all have access. If everybody came through the door, you'd find many more people that couldn't even carry a tune than you would find. Oh, look at this. How about this? Look what we discovered. There's always that. But that's a tiny, tiny percentage. And obviously, uh, none of this adheres to any of the basic minimal standards that we grew up uh, having respect for. Credibility, sourcing, the idea that you might have to face the person that you were now talking about. Um, and not that you have to butter them up, but you, if you criticize them, then you have to be able to uh, justify what you said and explain what you said. Now, there are literally no guardrails at all. Uh, now, it's one thing to say that Twitter or X exists for better or worse. The technology gives everybody a voice, including somebody who prior to this technology would have just been muttering to himself in his beer at the end of the bar or sitting with you know potato chip crumbs on his pot belly on his couch with his wife ignoring him. All those people now have access. I accept that. What I find it hard to accept is lazy people with no standards who on websites, which admittedly are many notches beneath a Sports Illustrated or a a New York Times or a St. Louis Post-Dispatch, but still they have a name. They're there. The writer has a name. And those people often treat Twitter as if it's a pupil. So 12 people say something about some subject or some person on Twitter and then some website, either out of stupidity or laziness or cynicism, decides that this represents a consensus. You know, so fans of such and such team roast such and such an announcer. Yeah. On a fan website, <laughs> 20 people said that. Yeah. Maybe another 20 said, ah, you're full of it. That makes no sense. But all there, there's no there's no standard here. All that we're looking for is clicks and the most provocative clickbait type headline. And no one is ever going to hold any of those people to account. There are no editors. There is no even peer or colleague pressure. In the previous world, where there was a different landscape, both for print and for broadcast, there were always people who were more or less honest, more or less fair-minded, but even the worst of them were held in check somewhat by fear of the disapproval of their colleagues or a reprimand from the people they worked for. Now, I want to interrupt none you. of there that was, comes into play. There was just an example, I believe it was last week, with uh, NFL reporter Carissa Thompson admitting yeah. on a podcast, listen, I used to make things up if I couldn't get the quote mm-hmm. or whatever. And then she came and said, oh, I generalized and just said, oh, if, uh, yeah. we have too many third and outs or, or whatever. Yeah. She got dragged, you know, she, and there were a lot of her colleagues that tried to hold yeah. her accountable for that. Is that what you're referring to? No, uh, not as much. 
Yeah. Um, uh, Carissa, Carissa has a name. She has a job. She she then, you know, clarified her comment or apologized for it. Uh, I think sometimes um, because of the atmosphere on some podcasts or whatever, it's like, hey, tell us everything, you know, or blab about this, that or the other thing. And she should have been more discreet. That would have would have been better for her sake. Left unsaid. It wasn't like anyone was digging it up right. from the relatively distant past. And I think I, that's not the same as bloggers or websites that don't adhere to any kind of standard. Um, you know, there there are digital platforms for respected brands, but I guarantee you that in many cases, perhaps not all, but in many cases, the person whose name appears on their Sports Illustrated's digital platform couldn't, based on what he displays there, couldn't possibly be hired as a copy boy back in the day at Sports Illustrated. There are certain standards here. There's yeah. prestige. So all of them, even the Post-Dispatch, that letters to the editor are one thing. But if you just open it all up to comments and you don't really moderate those comments, you're going to have stuff that isn't just stupid or untrue. You're going to have scurrilous stuff existing alongside reasonable responses, either in agreement or disagreement. That that does not come close to the Pulitzer family's standard established at the Post-Dispatch. Uh, and I've said this for years and years. What the mainstream should have done was take its standards and its quality to the new technology, not surrender to the ethos of the new technology. If something was worthwhile, it was worthwhile if it came off Gutenberg's printing press. But if it was a lie or a crock of crap, then it was also that if it came off Gutenberg's printing press or someone wrote it on a piece of parchment paper with a quill pen. The technology changes. The fact that I and maybe you prefer to hold an actual newspaper in our hand with a cup of coffee in the morning is only a generational preference. But what should be timeless is what's the quality and the credibility of it? Now, back to Carissa. I don't know her. Everybody I know who works with her says she's a wonderful person and she apparently works hard at what she does now. Um, but I think that those among her colleagues who responded as they did, their concern was that it's gotten better, but there are still people who want to diminish or dismiss the possibility that a female sports reporter could know what she's talking about, especially in a football context, where mm -hmm. there's a certain macho type of thing that's an overlay of that. And so the Michelle Tafoyas, the Laura Oakmans of the world and others, Andrea Kramer, who work very, very hard, and I can attest to that. I have tremendous respect for what they do. They don't want that to be reduced to a caricature of someone who doesn't know anything and is just there as window dressing. Right. So I think their response to that was more in defense of what they do and what they've had to work so hard to establish credibility doing. It was more about that than being upset with Carissa as a person. Right, right. And I've heard the same thing, that she's lovely. And you're right. Why would you even bring it up? But we're going to move on from that subject. I do want to talk about the flip side of it, whereas, you know, journalist school, you you walk through the ranks and, and mm -hmm. Syracuse has has bred so many amazing sports people, um, not only from the broadcasting side, but athletics as well. Let's talk about 
um, sports journalism and how it's married now to former athletes. So many amazing former athletes are on NFL panels and they're on Major yes. League Baseball. What do you think about that? You know, most of them don't have a sports journalism yeah. degree, but they know the game. Do you like yeah. that or no? I have no problem with it. Cosell used to rail against what he called the jockocracy. But even as he was railing, there was still a place in a big megaphone for Howard Cosell. There should always be a place for the career announcer. And in almost every situation, you know, Al Michaels was with Chris Collinsworth. And now Mike Tirico, Syracuse, <laughs> is with Chris Collinsworth. Chris no Collinsworth, <laughs> former, right, former NFL player who has worked very hard to be a credible analyst. That's all you care about. Joe Buck with Troy Aikman, Jim Nance with Tony Romo. There's almost always the career professional announcer with the color person or analyst who works alongside him or her. And what you ask of the analyst is that they don't just show up and rest on their laurels. Because when you do that, Sometimes you can get by for the first two or three years because you're directly familiar with those players, those teams. You studied film to prepare for that. But if that's all you do and you don't work hard beyond that first few years, you're going to be exposed. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I was watching the football game yesterday, the Bills and the uh, Bills and the who did they play? Jets. The Jets. Yes. Thank yes. you. The Bills won my team. Um Tony Romo, I learned so much from him. And that's why I like hearing these athletes on these broadcasts because, mm -hmm. because you they they break it down and you learn about the game, which you know I've never played yeah. it down in football in my life. I love it. I love to watch it, but I learn so much. I've got a couple more questions for you. Um yes. let's talk about, you know, Tim Tebow praying on the side, uh, uh Colin Kaepernick uh, kneel, kneeling during the anthem politics intertwined in sports, do they go hand in hand or should they? Well, sometimes, inevitably, they have. Was Jackie Robinson playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers not in and of itself a social statement, a political statement? And then Robinson, who was an exceptionally intelligent and principled person, used that platform, even though he tragically died at just 53, he used that platform during his playing days and beyond to be part of the civil rights movement. Was Muhammad Ali, whether you liked him or not, agreed with him or not, was he not also a political figure? Were Tommy Smith and John Carlos with the raised fists uh, at Mexico City, which I think meant much more and was more meaningful in that context than Colin Kaepernick's kneeling was mm -hmm. generations later. Was Billie Jean King not an important part in her own way of the women's movement? Uh, some of these things, that they're, they're just thrust upon us. At the Olympics, you 72 have... Munich. 72 Munich. Then the IOC refuses to acknowledge any of the anniversaries of that. And then I went ahead and did it. In 2012 in London, the, the survivors of those who had been killed had begged the IOC for some kind of recognition. And the IOC did some little almost invisible ceremony in the Olympic Village in front of like 100 people. And, and I mentioned it uh, on the opening ceremony in 2012 in London. There are just times when these things intersect. There was an Iranian in 2004 in Athens who was the flag bearer for the Iranian team. 
happened to be a judo guy. And he drew an Israeli as his first round opponent at the Olympics. And he refused to compete against the Israeli, had to forfeit, went back home and was given the same treatment and the same award as if he had won the gold medal. Now, when I asked the president of the IOC about this, his implausible answer was the competitor couldn't make weight. Now, wait a minute. We know Iran's position and remains a position is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. You can't, no matter how many Olympic platitudes you try and dress this up with, you can't say that politics hasn't intersected here. You can't say that the IOC granting an Olympics to Putin's Russia, in which Putin and his operatives switched out drug samples or urine samples for drug tests of Russian competitors right under the IOC's nose. And then to go back to Beijing a second time with the same BS explanation, we think the Olympics will help to moderate the behavior of these regimes. How's that working out? You can't, you just cannot separate those things. Now, there is a question about the time and place. The Olympics are the biggest international platform. You could make a reasonable case, let's say, when we're talking about Colin Kaepernick. I don't think that all the right-wing response where they were just really looking for something that rabbles up their base and, and their audience, making Colin Kaepernick seem like it was a threat to the Republic, whereas their preferred presidential candidate is actually a true threat to democracy itself and doesn't care about that. But, oh, let's, uh, let's leave that aside. Let's, let's focus on Colin Kaepernick. Um, Kaepernick had a legitimate issue, which was police mistreatment of black Americans. But you could make a case that doing it during the national anthem, which to many people represents the nation's ideals, including equality and justice for all, that that would be less effective than if he used his platform to do it elsewhere. Um, that's a that you can make a case. You could be sympathetic to his point and still say that that was not uh, the most effective way to make that point. And then as it happens, Colin Kaepernick turns out to be not worthy of being in the same discussion as Arthur Ashe or Billie Jean King or Muhammad Ali or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, you know, every situation has to be taken on its own merits mm -hmm. and distinctions can be made. <laughs> and you're right. And and no matter what the subject matter, whether it's BLM or, you know, prayer on the sideline or whatever, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, the word you use, the vultures, man, they come out for whatever side it is. And and I yeah. think, yeah, it's going to happen. Goodness, you know, look, this, this is like stick to sports. Stick to sports really means when you're saying something I don't agree with or I don't want to hear, because when when Fox News, you know, I have nothing, no problem with this. It, everyone has this right. But they put Lou Holtz on. They put Bobby Knight on. If those athletes, former athletes or including entertainers, shut up and dribble and shut up and sing didn't apply. If you were saying what we agree with, hey, sports announcers shouldn't do this. Well. Clay Travis does it all the time. He's just coming from a conservative perspective on OutKick. Brian Kilmeade is a former sports announcer turned Fox News commentator. Good for him. He's a nice guy. But nobody says, oh, that's beyond his qualifications. You know? And, um, and my, my philosophy is 
you know what? They pay a whole lot more in taxes than I do. And they have the same right as an American under the First Amendment to say what they want. It's like, you know what? You can say more than dribble. I'm good with that. And you can you can. But I'll also say this, that I never, despite some generalities that live in certain quarters of the Internet or cable TV or right wing talk radio, I have never talked about any political issue during a game or during an event. Not only would that be inappropriate, it would be ineffective. When I have very occasionally done it, it would be at halftime of the game or pregame or interstitial moments during the Olympics when it was relevant and when it was pertinent. Or people will sometimes be confused if I go on CNN and they ask me a question and I'm talking about it on CNN or on HBO, there's no game going on. And this idea that many said, oh, he always turned Sunday night football into something about his politics. There were hundreds of halftimes. Two, two. The gun thing, which I didn't do as good a job of explaining as I should have, so that's Mm -hmm. on me. Or the Redskins name when they were still named the Redskins. And if that isn't a pertinent subject for a halftime essayist, and that's the role they assigned to me, I don't know who's supposed to talk about that. Sean Hannity's supposed to talk about that? Right. I'm the guy who's supposed to talk about that. And I did it in a very, I think, even-handed and measured way. The gun thing I wish I had a do-over on, but you know what happens when you talk about the vultures. There's still people out there who think that I, I want to take everybody's guns away and I'm against the Second Amendment. I never said any such thing. I never thought any such thing. But once stuff gets out there and it's repeated enough, no balls. people... People cling to whatever belief it is, but it's objectively false that even 1% of what I did was, at least on NBC, was political in nature. That is objectively false. And in fact, at the Olympics, many of those I held to account, you would have said that that would be applauded from a conservative perspective to say that here's Saudi Arabia. Marching in, the Olympics, the IOC has said they're hoping to reach a balance of 50-50, women to men. It's worth noting there isn't a single woman in this Saudi Arabian delegation, including officials, let alone athletes. Now, that's something I would assume they would applaud at Fox News. Right. What I said about the Iranian and the Israeli, I'm sure they would applaud at Fox News. Me bringing up the 40th anniversary of, of, uh, of Munich. I'm assuming they would applaud that. I'm assuming they would applaud, you could Google it, what I said about Putin and about the IOC granting an Olympics to Russia or granting an Olympics to Beijing. I would assume, I don't. I didn't think of it as right-wing or conservative. I just thought of it as common sense and fair-minded. But I assume that would be something that conservative people would find agreement with. But once a caricature has been created, people don't like nuanced stuff. They, they want to put you in one box or another. And I think over time, my career has been very varied and very textured. And so, too, are my political beliefs and my views of the world. But that's just too difficult for a lot of people or not useful. If you can't make a cartoon out of somebody, then how can you how can you stick to all your binary black and white arguments? Wow, that was quite something which, you know, it's like, all right. You running for office any day soon, Bob Costas? <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. 
That's that's it in a nutshell. And one more question. Did I read, what was it, a yeah. month ago? You saved somebody's life by administering the Heimlich maneuver? You know, I may have. At, at least I didn't wow. harm him. I may have saved him. I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry that the story ever got out because I wasn't trying to call any attention to myself. And neither was he nor his wife, uh, who were the two people I was seated with. I was at, at Syracuse speaking to classes. And I hooked up with an old friend of mine, a longtime news anchor in Syracuse. And the three of us are out having dinner and he starts choking on his steak. And I'd never performed the Heimlich maneuver, but I was familiar with it because, you know, those posters are in restaurants. Right, they're everywhere. You see things on TV. So I got up and just did what I thought I should do, you know, and at the very least, it didn't hurt. The piece came flying out and he was turning crimson red. Oh, and oh, terrifying. I said to him, are you okay?" And he couldn't speak. He shook his head. No. And his his face is turning crimson. So luckily it worked out. But no one outside of the three of us really would have known about it. But somebody, some fellow diner decided to take a cell phone picture of me not performing the maneuver, but sitting there later, sipping my glass of wine and then send that shadowy picture to a gossip site. And that's where it got out. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good story. All's, all's well that ends yes. well. You know, I, I would prefer that we lived in a world where people respected the social compact a little bit more. I would have preferred that that person walk up and say, hey, sir, are you all right? And hi, Bob. I'm glad you were here. I yes. enjoyed work. Or what, I would Common decency. That. Right. I prefer that as opposed to, ooh, oh boy, gossip. But, you know, I can't that that train's gone so far down the track. There's no way I'm going to turn it around. <laughs> Not Bob Costas, no matter how big you are. Well, no. listen, our time is up. I, I can't even imagine. I, I couldn't have imagined it, it. It would have been better than it was. I, I appreciate your time, your stories, your insight. Uh, I look up to you still and oh, always you. will. And and. I appreciate your time. Just thank you so much. What what are you what are you working on next? I mean, you just finished with the World Series. So what's next? Well, you know, basically I do a little bit of baseball, only as much as I feel comfortable doing. I'm a contributor at CNN. Uh, regrettably, HBO, where I had a long history and was so prestigious in sports, uh, that landscape has changed. And basically, when the last episode of Real Sports happens this December. HBO Sports will be shuttered. Mm. So I returned briefly to HBO for a couple of years and did the kind of show that I'd done before and that I always have wanted to do again. Um, but then the realities of television, everything's gone. Back in the day, HBO used to do all those great sports documentaries. They had boxing, they had inside the NFL, they yeah. had real sports. They had my shows on the record and then back on the record. Uh, but the landscape has changed so much that HBO had to, I guess, pivot from its previous financial model. Uh, and when real sports goes, that's a, a real loss because that was the 60 minutes of sports. And Brian yeah. and team did such a great job. But, you know, to what I'm doing, I'm doing only as much as I want to do. I'm on the exit ramp moving at about 20 miles an hour. I'm not speeding on the exit ramp, but I'm, I'm on it. That is awesome. Well, hopefully our paths will cross when you come back to St. Louis someday. You know, maybe I'll pass you on that escalator and say, hi, maybe. Bob, once again. Maybe. maybe. And now you should learn it if you didn't know already. You ask me certain kinds of questions, you're going to get an answer. <laughs> now, what, what, what some of the vultures do with it, 
stripping it of context, nuance, and tone, occupational hazard. We'll see. <laughs> I have zero regrets. Bob Costas, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Randy. Nice to be with you. This has been More to Say with Randy Naughton. Interesting conversations with interesting people. Be sure to like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.